Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five, and we'll read verses one to four this morning. Hebrews chapter five, beginning in verse one, says, "For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses." And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord, that teaches us the need for us, Lord, as sinners, to have a great high priest who is over the household of God, one who is holy, undefiled, separated from sinners, one who can offer on our behalf gifts and sacrifice for sins. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided, Lord, the only one who could serve in this role, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who you have sent to come and redeem your people. And so, Lord, we pray today that you teach us, Lord, of his great work of redemption, Lord, that we might have a fuller and a more complete understanding of all that he does for us and of the compassion, the mercy that you bestow upon us through him. So Lord, teach us today and Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, here we've come to chapter five of Hebrews. And in this chapter, the apostle will begin to unfold with greater detail the role of Jesus Christ as the great high priest over the household of God. This is what he will deal with from here all the way through chapter 10. How it is that Jesus fulfills this and all of the duties that were associated with the high priestly role. He will do this beginning here by comparing and contrasting Jesus as high priest with those high priests who served under the law, who were descended from Aaron, beginning with Aaron, and then his successors who were descended from him. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 will describe the office and the duties of the high priest as established under the law of Moses. Then in verses 5 through 10, he will apply this description of the office and the duty of high priest to Jesus Christ, showing that he is the preeminent one who is established as the high priest over the household of God and that he has preeminence over that priesthood that descended from Aaron. His main point in the chapter is to show the excellency of Christ as high priest by way of comparing and contrasting him to the high priesthood of Aaron. And in every way, he will prove that Jesus is far superior to the high priest that served under the old covenant. Right? Whatever was there with them, whatever was necessary for them to faithfully execute their office, all of these qualities are found in Christ and are found in an even greater extent in Him. So there's nothing lacking for the people of God. There is nothing that was possessed by the high priest in the ministry that they served in under the old covenant that was not also exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. So everything we need for our spiritual well-being is perfected in his priesthood. But not only is it perfected in him, also he will show that those areas of deficiencies that were found in the priesthood of Aaron, none of those deficiencies apply to Christ. So he is free from all of those things that kept them from faithfully and perfectly discharging the office of 
priest. Whatever weakness, whatever sins found in them are not found in Christ. So in all ways then, he is a perfect high priest, possessing all the essential traits to fulfill the role of high priest, but also void of any hint of sin that would cause him to fail in the performance of his duties. Whatever was good in them is found and perfected in Christ. Whatever was bad in them is absent from Christ, so that he and he alone is the perfect, merciful, faithful high priest to God. Then in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, he will rebuke the church for failing to understand and rightly apply these truths. He will show them that he should not have to be teaching them these things again, that they should be convinced, they should be confident, they should be stable in these things and not have doubts concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ. Yet this is exactly where they are stumbling. Christ is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He is the substance, while the old covenant types are merely shadows. These are the elementary principles of the oracles of God. How can they not understand that the high priest of the old covenant was not the end in himself, but was there to point to a greater high priest, and now that that greater high priest has come, why would you be tempted to forsake him and go back to the priest of the old covenant? These are the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and these are the things that they are stumbling upon. And so he will rebuke them in order to stabilize them to be confident in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is where we will go in chapter 5, and we'll begin today in verses 1 to 4 with a description of the office and duties of the high priest under the law. So let's look here then, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here, every high priest, he's describing specifically this office of high priest. Because in this one office, this one man of high priest is found the entirety of the priestly service of the Old Covenant. Though all there were many priests in the Old Covenant who attended and helped the high priest, all of them served under his leadership, under his role, under this head. And the substance of the high priest found in Christ was foreshadowed in the high priest that served under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, this office was occupied by many men. Yet in terms of shadow and substance, the entirety of the priesthood draws its importance from this role of high priest. The high priest was the chief. He was the prince of the priest. And it is in the high priest that the office of Christ was set forth by way of shadow. Now this type or this shadow could not be occupied by one merely mortal man. And this is why it was necessary for many men over the course of Israel's history to occupy this role for two main reasons. First, no single man could fulfill this role because all of the high priests of the Old Covenant were prevented by death from continuing in this ministry as high priests on behalf of the people. They were mortal men, and eventually they died, and when they died, they could no longer serve in the capacity of high priests. They were prevented by death from maintaining that role, that office, in uh, perpetuity. Hebrews chapter 7 23 to 25. Hebrews 7, 23. 
says, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There in the old covenant, there were many, many priests, thousands of priests who served. But all the ministry of those thousands of priests, all of them are culminating, are fulfilled in one man, in one person, one priest, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the way it is. Death prevented Aaron from continuing in this role. Therefore, it was necessary for another to take his place, and this continued over the course of many generations. For 1,400 years, under the regulations established by Moses there in the Old Covenant. So it was necessary for there to be many high priests through Israel's history. Also, it was necessary that even during the life of the high priest, it was impossible for him, for that one man, to fulfill all the duties that were necessary for that office of high priest. This because of his weaknesses, because of his limitations. It was necessary for him to be assisted by other priests, right? To serve and to help him execute this office, to fulfill the role and accomplish all of the tasks necessary for the high priest. These priests were not acting independently. They were not serving independently of the high priest, but were under his authority. And this is why there was an entire class of priests under the Old Covenant, thousands and thousands of men serving in that role because no one man could fulfill all those things. But our Lord Jesus Christ can. This is why He doesn't need assistance. He does not need other priests to come alongside of Him and help Him fulfill the duties of the priesthood. He is able to do all of that all by Himself. The point being here in discussing the high priest is the apostle is showing that the entirety of the priestly service under the law, right, that required under the law many, many priests to fulfill this work, yet all of this work, all of this ministry was founded under one head, under one chief, the prince of the priests who was the high priest. And the high priest is here being singled out from the rest of the priests. There were certain roles and responsibilities that only he could perform. Even the other priests were not allowed on the Day of Atonement to go into the Holy of Holies and to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Only the high priest could go into that place, and only he could do it once a year. When God established this office of high priest, that office was fulfilled by one man, right? It rested upon Aaron who was the high priest, and then it passed to his son Eleazar, and then it passed from generation to generation to those there in his family. And all of this was by God's design in order to better and more clearly show that the great high priest, the substance of the high priest, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, that he himself would perform the entirety of the priestly service on behalf of his people, and that he would do this without any assistance without any help from anyone else, but that he would take it up all by himself. Himself. The limitations that made it necessary for there to be both many high priests in Israel's history, and that made it necessary for him to be assisted by numerous other priests, none of these limitations apply to Jesus Christ. 
right? He is not prevented by death from serving in that role for all eternity because he has the power of an indestructible life. He has eternal life. He lives forever. Death no longer has dominion over him, so he can serve forever as our high priest. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, 24, it says, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So there's no need for Jesus to have a successor for him to pass the office of great high priest to his son or to one of his successors, someone appointed by God. This was necessary under the old covenant because of the continuation of death. Because Aaron and his sons were mortal men that had bodies that were perishing, and all of them were prevented by death from holding the priesthood permanently. But Jesus is not met with this limitation. He has the power of an indestructible life. He has eternal life and will never need to step down from this office and pass it on to one of his descendants. Also, he has no need of assistance from anyone. He can bear all of the responsibilities of the priestly service all by himself. He does not need a class of priests to come and help him serve there in the tabernacle that is not of this creation. He is able to shoulder all of the work completely by himself. And this is why here the apostle is singling out the high priest. For in this office is set forth by way of shadow the entirety of the priestly service of Christ. He is the high priest that we need. He is the only one who can fulfill this role, only our Lord Jesus Christ. Even Aaron could not fulfill this role, even under the shadow. He had to have many people help him, and he had to have many people come after him in order to continue doing this role, but only Christ can do it. Notice next, he says, every high priest taken from among men, taken from among men. Now here, two things are included. First, the high priest is taken from among men, meaning he must possess a nature that is like the ones he serves, right? His nature must be one with the people he serves. He is a high priest for the people, for men, Therefore, he must also be taken from among men. This is essential to the role of high priest. He must be a man. Aaron was a man, just like the rest of the Israelites. He was taken from among men. And his humanity was not special in any way. Aaron was not created from a different line of humanity. He did not come from a different group of people, but he was, had a nature just like the rest of the Israelites. He had a nature like theirs. In terms of his human nature, he was just like the rest. He had the same nature as those whom he served. He was equally descended from Adam. He was equally descended from Noah. And he was equally descended from Abraham. And even amongst his own tribe, the tribe of Levi, he was equally descended from the rest of the Levites and even from the rest of the priests, right? This is the case. He was taken from among men. And in the same way, our Lord Jesus was also taken from among men. Not that he was taken from among Adam's uh, helpless race or Adam's corrupt race, but Jesus also had a human nature. 
He took on flesh and blood, and his human nature was not different than our human nature. His human nature was one and the same as ours. The only difference with Christ is he was without sin. But sin is not essential to our human nature. Because when God created Adam in the garden, he created him without sin. So it is possible to be a man and to have a like nature with other men and yet be free from sin. This is what he means here in that he was taken from among men. Also, Jesus was taken from among men. His nature is one with ours. And this is essential because if he's going to serve as high priest for us, right, for people, then he has to have a nature that is like ours in every way, except without sin. Hebrews chapter 2, right? He has to be able to relate and sympathize and have a like nature with those that he is ministering on behalf of. This is why an angel could not serve as our high priest, right? Because the angel cannot represent men because the angel has a different nature than a man. It must be a man. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll read verses 14 to 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. There, the children have flesh and blood, so he partook of the same. He partook of the same human nature that we have. And this was necessary for him to do this. So the high priest has a common nature with those he serves. But also here, he is taken from among men. He is set apart for this task or for this role. The high priest was chosen by God, was consecrated by God for this office, for this role as high priest. So in terms of nature, the high priest is like his brethren, but in terms of office and rank, he is taken from among them. He is set apart from them to fulfill this peculiar role on their behalf. He does things that they can't do. They don't have the right to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. But who does have that right? The high priest. And where did he get this right? Who gave him that privilege? God gave it to him. God chose him. God took him from among men, consecrated him, and set him apart for this task and for this work. If we go back to Exodus chapter 28, Exodus chapter 28 and we know that, again, Aaron's situation was just like the rest of the Hebrew children whenever God called him for this task. Hebrew, or Hebrews, Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak 
to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod, and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that they may minister as priests to me. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. Then also chapter 29, verse 1. 29.1 says, Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. Then also chapter 29, verse 43, verses 43 to 46. It says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So there Aaron was taken from the common lot and was consecrated along with his sons by God in order to serve in this holy role, this holy position. Just like it was with the altar, with the tabernacle, right? It wasn't made from wood that came down out of heaven or from materials that came out of heaven. All the materials used to make the altar, to make the robes, right, to make the tabernacle, all of that was common. It came from this earth. But then what made it holy? God consecrated it. God set it apart. In the same with Aaron, he was just like the rest, but he was chosen by God, consecrated by God, to serve in this capacity. Jesus also was consecrated by God. He was appointed by God for this task to serve as great high priest over the household of God. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. Hebrews 7, 28 says, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. God appointed his son for this task. And he, and he alone, is able to fulfill it because he is the perfect son of God. Now next, why is the high priest taken from among men? Well, notice what he says. He is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here, the purpose of the high priest is to serve before God, right? He ministers before God, but he does it on behalf of men, right? He is a minister, a servant who is serving his brethren, ministering before God on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. These holy things of God that God has established, he serves on behalf of his brothers in these things pertaining to God. Things that God has set apart and that God has called them to do. And here, namely, it is the offering of gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is his chief task, is to make atonement for the sins of the people by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins offering those to God on behalf of the people. He's appointed by God for this task. After sin entered into the world because of the transgression of Adam, from that point forward, 
Sinful men cannot draw near to God. We cannot worship God. We cannot approach His throne in our sinfulness, right? Because we are under the condemnation of death. God's wrath abides on us. And if we are to have God's favor and God's blessing, then that wrath that is directed toward that man, that wrath must be diverted to something else. It must be satisfied in another person. And the sacrifice is what brings the satisfaction. So that the wrath of God is now removed and God's favor, His face can shine upon that man and His blessing, His salvation, the forgiveness of sins can come to Him. Sacrifice for sin is necessary to satisfy the wrath of God against sinful men so that we can draw near to God, so that the worshipers are not consumed by God's fury. Sinners cannot offer these sacrifices on their own. They cannot just go and do this on their own. Because if they did, what would happen to them? They would be consumed. They would be consumed by the fury of God's wrath. And this is why the high priest is appointed to serve on behalf of men. To do for them what they cannot do for themselves. We do not have the right or the ability to pass through the heavens to go into the heaven of heavens, to approach the throne of God in our sinfulness, and to offer a sacrifice for our sins by ourselves. The minute we did that, hypothetically speaking, we would be completely consumed by the fury of God's wrath. Because in our sin, we are stubble, we are hay, we are dry wood, and our God is a consuming fire. And when we approached Him, we would be consumed, burned to death by His wrath and by His fury. So we can't do it on our own. We need someone to do it for us. Someone to represent us before God. To offer sacrifices and gifts for our sins before God. God cannot be approached by sinners in this way. And this is why the high priest was established. He was established on behalf of men, right? On regarding things pertaining to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And no man could take that upon himself. Only God could give that to someone. And he gave it to Aaron and his sons as a shadow of the substance who is Christ. An example of one brazenly trying to take these things upon himself to his own derision is 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 21 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 21. This is Uzziah, who was a believer, and he was counted by God as a righteous man. Yet, in his pride, he sought to do what had been given to the high priest. Right, And in the Old Covenant, the office of king and the office of priests were separated, right? They were not held by one person. The king came from the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi and specifically from the family of Aaron. And they were separated so that what the king did, the priest couldn't do. And what the priest did, the king could not do. 16, 2 Chronicles 26, 16 says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. 
For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord your God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah the priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. There, this king took for himself what he was not consecrated to do. He was not appointed by God on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Aaron was, and his sons were, but Uzziah was not. And God was merciful to him by just giving him leprosy, because what could God have done? He could have killed him right there on the spot. So he was not fit to do these things because he had not been appointed and consecrated by God for these things. Right? He was doing what was contrary to the order of God. Now the purpose was to teach men that they cannot approach God without a mediator, without an intercessor, without a high priest because of our sins. Because of our sins, we need someone to minister before God on our behalf in things pertaining to God. And this is what the high priest did under the old covenant by way of shadow, showing, typifying the need for Christ to serve as high priest over the household of faith. If we go back to Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16, 15 to 22 there, we see that it is mentioned here that they are serving on behalf of others. Leviticus sixteen fifteen says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides, which his finger, he, with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. When he has finished atoning for the place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall offer the live goat." Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel, 
and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. There, Aaron is the one representing the people before God, confessing their sins before God, putting their sins typically on this goat there before God, and then sending them out and making atonement on their behalf. He was the one doing this for them confessing their iniquities, their transgressions before the Lord and offering sacrifices for their sake, right? Because of their sins, their impurities. Sin is the barrier that separates us from God. And it is the priest who offers the sacrifice for sins so that this barrier separating God from man is removed and that we can now draw near to him. So then the whole point of the high priest Right? The purpose for this appointment was to serve sinful men, to minister before God for the sake of sinners, and the primary task was seen in offering sacrifices for sins. Right? Because of sin, we cannot directly worship God. We have no communion with God. We cannot dwell with God. We do not have His favor, but His wrath abides on us. And because all men are sinners then all men are in need of a high priest, of someone to stand in their place to represent God for them, right? To serve on behalf of men. It is necessary for this high priest to be both like them and unlike them. Like them in that he must have a nature like theirs. He must be a man as they are, but unlike them in that he cannot himself have sin. And this is the fault, the weakness, of the high priest of the old covenant. All of them were themselves sinners. So how can a sinful high priest serve as a mediator between God and man? How can he rightly represent and serve on behalf of sinful men in things pertaining to God when that sinful priest is himself in need of someone to serve his behalf, to stand between him and God, and to do things for him in terms of sacrifices for sin. It is obvious from the Old Covenant, right, even from what we read in Leviticus 16, he has to offer sacrifices for himself, right, for himself first, right? How can he ever remove the sins of the people? How can a high priest atone for sins who is himself in need of atonement? How can a high priest deliver from death who himself is still subjected to death? Right? It is impossible in these things for there ever to be the removal of sin. This is obvious both from the high priests that come from Aaron, their death, also their offering sacrifices for their own sins, and also how often did they have to offer these sacrifices? repeatedly over and over and over again because what they were doing could not deal with the sins of the people. It could not atone perfectly for the sins of the people. We need a high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is undefiled, and who is separated from sinners. One who is exalted above the heavens. One who does not need first to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Only that one can serve as high priest 
between God and man. Then he can offer himself as the sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 7.26 Hebrews 7.26 says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Right, here the high priesthood of Christ is not like the high priesthood of Aaron. There are points of agreement, but there are also points of dissonance where they are not in agreement. And one of those points where they are not in agreement is that Jesus did not have to first offer sacrifice for his own sins. And why did he not have to do this? Because he was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. He was not like us in terms of sin nature. He was like us in every way except for this one. He was without sin. And since the chief duty of the high priest is to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, he must make atonement for them, which requires the shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, 22. And this is why the high priest is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. His chief function is the shedding of blood. The shedding of the blood of the sacrifice and offering the blood of that sacrifice for the sins of the people to make atonement through the shedding of blood. So that the barrier of sin that separates God from man is removed and then the men are able to draw near to God. And without a high priest and without a sacrifice for sin, reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins is impossible. It will never happen. And who is the only one who can serve in this role? Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only one appointed by God to do this. He and he alone can offer the sacrifice that will atone for the sins of his people. He is the high priest, and he is the sacrifice, and he is the altar. He is the tabernacle. Everything there that was represented in that worship under the old covenant, all of it finds its fulfillment in one person, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are dark shadows of the substance who is Christ. And this shows us the greatness of Christ, but also the greatness of our position, the position in which we find ourselves and our standing before God. Isn't it a great privilege to have Jesus as your high priest? Are we not in a better situation even than those under the old covenant who had Aaron or Eleazar or one of his sons serving as their high priest? Jesus is far superior to them. So who has it better than anyone? You and I do. We do. We have Christ, the Son of God, appointed on behalf of God to serve us, to minister before God on our behalf in things pertaining to God, offering gifts and sacrifice for our sins. And we know that God will accept his sacrifice, that it will be pleasing to God, and it will take away our sins, and then we are called boldly to draw near to God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. It says, He, the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. Here we see one of the traits, a virtue, essential, necessary for the faithful exercise of the role of high priest, namely gentleness. He can deal gently. The high priest was to be a man filled with compassion, with tenderness, with kindness, with pity, with love, with forbearance, with mercy for those that he serves. He serves on behalf of men. And those men he serves are sinful men who are described here as ignorant and misguided. And so how does he have to be his disposition toward the people that he serves? He has to deal with them gently. Because in this life, are these people ever going to be perfect? Are they ever going to be without sin? As long as he's ministering on their behalf. No, it's never going to happen. So he's going to have to have forbearance, patience, mercy, kindness, compassion, gentleness for them. They, the people, must be the objects of his love and of his compassion. Even though their sins be ever so great, even though they stumble in many ways, even though they wander from the path, even though they may be very ignorant of the things of God, yet he must be gentle in the way that he approaches the people. In terms of his role before God, the chief trait of the high priest is faithfulness to God. To be faithful, to discharge his duties before God according to the word of God, according to the command of God. What God has prescribed, this is what he must do. But in terms of his relationship to men, the chief trait of the high priest is compassion. Compassion and love for his people. Mercy, gentleness for them. Right? The people must be convinced, they must be assured that when they come to draw near to God, when they come to worship the Lord, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, that the high priest will take pity on them, that he will see them as frail, weak, miserable creatures and have compassion on them, and will be moved by that compassion to intercede with God on their behalf and to offer sacrifices for their sins. Love for the people is the motivation for his ministry on their behalf. And he, the high priest, is their intermediary. He is the mediator between God and man. He represents the people to God. Right? This is what we read earlier. He's pointed on behalf of men to represent the people to God, but he also represents God to the people. So if the high priest is severe, if he is harsh, if he is bitter, if he has no compassion, no pity, if he has outbursts of anger against the people, fits of rage against the people, if he's exploiting the people, then the people are going to be discouraged to draw near to God. Because the high priest is such a mean, harsh, cruel person. Why will they want to draw near to God through this high priest if he himself is a severe, mean, bitter person? Right? They're not going to be encouraged to do so. 
And when they do, they're not going to expect God to be merciful to them, God to have goodness and kindness and grace and mercy to them, because when they see the Lord through their high priest, what they see is not an accurate representation. It is a corruption of the truthfulness of God. And this is where the high priest among men, they all fail in one way or another. Because no matter who they are, can they ever perfectly love their neighbor as themselves? Can they perfectly put their needs before their own? No, in one way or another, at some point in their ministry, they're going to be impatient. They're going to get frustrated with the people. They're going to rail against them. They're going to have outbursts of anger against them. Right? And this we see even in Moses. Even Moses, who was himself described by the Lord in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, as the most meek man on the entire face of the earth. He was a mild meek, gentle, humble man. This is what was true of Moses, generally speaking. His disposition was a man of meekness, of mildness, of gentleness. But was he this perfectly? No. Because of the repeated provocations of the people, even Moses, even he broke out in anger against them because of what they had done. Numbers chapter 20 And this is part of his sin that precludes him from entering the land of promise. Is that he was the intermediary between God and man. He was, in a sense, as it says when he went before Pharaoh, God told Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Not that Moses was divine, but Moses represented God to Pharaoh. And in the same way, he represented God to the people. And he represented, typically, the high priestly role of Christ to the people. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. says, Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus confessed, or contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness, for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or wine or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I gave them. Those were the waters of Meribah. Because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. There the people are as they have been 
for many, many years, contentious, ignorant, misguided. This is the way that they are. And yet, in spite of this, God chooses to be merciful to them. God could have let them die there. He could have justly said, you bunch of rebels, right? I'm going to leave you to die, and you can uh, you know, be parched and dehydrated until the day that you die because you are such a disobedient people. But what did God choose to do on behalf of the people? To be merciful to them, to provide for their needs, right? to give them water, to show to them his kindness. Yet when Moses and Aaron, the intermediaries, who were to bring this about on behalf of the people, when they did that, how did they do it? With harshness, with anger, right? They spoke to them in this way, and then they struck the rock in the way that they did. And so they brought derision upon the name of the Lord. And this is Moses, who is the most meek, mild man on the entire earth. Commonly, very meek, very mild, a very gentle man. We know that he was a patient man because he put up with these people for 40 years. And even when God tested him and said, I'm just going to destroy them and I'll start a new nation with you, Moses interceded on their behalf. Moses prayed for them. And yet even he had his limitations. Right? Even he was not perfect in the practice of compassion, of pity, of gentleness, and of patience toward the people. But here, he became angry. He had an outburst of anger and dealt with the people harshly to the derision of the glory of God. And this is why the high priest, chosen among men, according to the law, could not perfectly execute this office because of the corruption of sin. In order to perfectly execute the office of high priest, one must love God with all his heart, soul, might, and strength, and one must perfectly love his neighbor as himself. But the flesh persisted even amongst the good ones, even amongst Moses, even amongst Aaron. Their flesh was still there waging war against the Spirit so that they could not perfectly exercise this office. They could not do it with perfect patience, perfect gentleness, perfect kindness toward the people. All of them, even the best of them, would fail from time to time to be gentle and patient toward the people. But who never fails at this? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why he and he alone is a perfect high priest. He is not plagued with the corruptions of sin. He has no flesh that is fighting and waging war against the Spirit. So he can perfectly exercise love, compassion, tenderness, kindness, gentleness, patience toward those that he serves. The entire life of the high priest is devoted in service to others. Every day, every week, every month, every year of his life, he is required to set his own interests aside and serve and dedicate his life for the benefit of his people, for the benefit of others, offering for them the same sacrifices year after year after year, day after day after day, over and over and over again. And what man could ever do this selflessly? What man could ever do this with no thought of his own interest, but only the interest of others? What man could ever do this with perfect patience? No one could ever do this except for one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only his shoulders are broad enough 
to bear this burden. And only his heart is filled with so much compassion that he does it willingly and he does it for our sake. And when we see him as our high priest and we see the compassion and mercy of Christ, we see the gentleness of Christ, then it incites in us, it encourages us to draw near to God. That God will be merciful to us because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That he will have compassion toward us. He is the only one that can do this, and it gives us great motive to draw near to God through our great high priest. His compassion and gentleness toward us motivates us. It convinces us. It assures us that God will be merciful to us. Next, notice in verse 2. Why must he be gentle? Because the men he serves on behalf of are described as ignorant and misguided. This is a perfect representation of you and me, of the people of God in this life. Is this not describe who we are each and every day? We are ignorant and we are misguided. All of them, no matter how godly they are, no matter how much progress they've made or any of us have made in the Christian life, there are many ways that each of us are ignorant and we are misguided. In one way or another, this describes you and me perfectly. We are all ignorant and misguided. No self-help here, folks, right? We're not here to build up your self-esteem. We need an accurate description of ourselves, right? We need to see ourselves according to reality. And what is the reality? We are ignorant and misguided people. We know this is true of us. And since this is our condition, we are prone to think that God will cast us off, that God will wash his hands of us, that God will say, enough is enough, I've had it with these people, right? I'm through with you. I'm done with you. This was the test he put before Moses. He said, I'm done with these people. I'm going to destroy all of them. And Moses, I'll rebuild a nation with you. And what did Moses do for those people? He interceded on their behalf. Well, if Moses did that, and Moses has the flesh, Moses was not a perfect man, how much more will our Lord Jesus Christ have compassion on his people, and intercede on our behalf. Yes, they are ignorant. Yes, they are misguided. Yes, they stumble in many ways. However, my work is sufficient, and my grace will have its course in their life. And I will bring them to perfection. I am not done with them, but I will do my work within my people. God will not cast us aside. Because our high priest is gentle toward ignorant, misguided sinners. We are encouraged that God will not forsake his people. For Jesus Christ did not come to serve as high priest for sinless people. He did not come to serve as high priest for perfectly righteous people. He came to serve as high priest for people that he full well knows are ignorant and misguided. And it is exactly because of this that we need a high priest like Jesus Christ. And we are assured that no matter how ignorant and how misguided we may be, he deals with us gently. We are ignorant. We are misguided. Ignorant. Who among us has perfect knowledge? Who among us perfectly understands all the secrets of God? Perfectly understands the will of God? None of us possesses perfect knowledge. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, we know in part, 
We know in part. Well, if we know part, then what is the other part? Ignorance. We don't know it, right? We are ignorant of the things of God. No one has perfect knowledge and perfect understanding of God's will. And even when we do have some understanding of God's will, none of us has a perfect application of that will to our present life. And ignorance describes both of these categories. There are some things that we are ignorant of. We don't even know these things. And ignorance certainly describes that situation. Such was the case, for example, in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech. When he took Sarah to be his wife, he did not know that she was Abraham's wife. This information was unknown to him, and so he took her in ignorance. And his sin was a sin of ignorance in that he did not factually know that she belonged to another man. However, ignorance is more than just not knowing the information. And there are many areas where we don't even know what the Bible teaches or we have not come to terms with those things. Ignorance also, though, can describe the influence of sin upon our mind. So that sin causes us to behave ignorantly. Even though we may know the principle, even though we may know what the Word of God says, sin comes upon our mind and influences us in such a way, it deludes us in such a way, that we act ignorantly, as if we do not know the things of God. What we know to be consistent with the will of God, we don't do it. And when we don't do it, we are behaving ignorantly. Ignorantly, right? It is an ignorant thing to do. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, 14 to 20, shows us this. Here, it's not a lack of information that is keeping him from doing the will of God. It is his flesh, the flesh waging war against the Spirit. Romans seven fourteen. Now, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to, but I, do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want." But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Here, his failure is not a lack of knowing the will of God. He knows what is good, and he knows what is evil. And he wants to do what is good, and he doesn't want to do what's evil. And yet, what does he find? He still does the very thing that he hates. There is still a lack of understanding. There is still a level of ignorance in that he does not perfectly practice the very things that he wants to do. And this is because of the deluding influence of sin, of the flesh, on our minds. It makes us ignorant so that we do not do the things of God. Also here, he describes us as misguided. Misguided. This is the other description and perfectly describes the people of God, of God again because even the best are misguided in many ways. We wander from the path. We stray from the way of God's commandments. Even though our heart is renewed and even though in a sense we want to do what is right, we want to walk on the straight and narrow path and yet we become misguided. We stray, we wander, 
here and there in many different ways over the course of our life. This is why in Psalm 119, verse 10, it says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. He understands that, yes, in his heart he has sought God, but he still has the propensity to do what? To wander away from God's commandments. Though he knows what the commandment says, there's the ability for him to wander away. An example of this, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 16 to 19. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16. This is speaking of Asa. He also removed Maacah, the mother of King Asa, from the position of queen mother, because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not, were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was blameless all his days. He brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. There, notice, he is commended as blameless. His heart was blameless all his days. So we are talking about a believer. We're talking about a Christian. We're talking about someone whose heart was blameless, was changed by God. But then notice chapter 16, verse 7. It says, At that time, Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians in Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, and he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the king of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. There, how can it be true that his heart was wholly devoted and blameless before the Lord all of his days? And yet also that here his heart was not true to the Lord that he was misguided, that he was ignorant. Now, was he ignorant? Did he not know that it was a sin to rely on an army and not rely on God? No, of course he knew that was right because he did it earlier in his life. Did he not know that it was a sin to throw a prophet into prison? Did he not know that it was a sin to oppress the people? Did he not know that it was a sin that when he became diseased in his feet that he should seek God? Of course he knew all these things. So then, why did he do them? He was ignorant and he was misguided. Even though he is commended by God as a man whose heart was blameless all of his days, yet he remained because of the flesh an ignorant and a misguided man. And did God completely cast him off? No. God did inflict a punishment upon him 
by giving him a disease, and God certainly will do that. He will chastise his children, but will he disown his children? Will he cast them off? Will he condemn them fully and finally? No, he will not do that. He was an ignorant, misguided man. He knew in part, but because he was a true child of God, he still possessed a good heart, but also the influence and corruption of the flesh. And in this way, in many ways, he was ignorant and he was misguided. And who does this describe as well? Each and every one of us. This is true of all of us as well. And yet, how does Jesus deal with such people? With gentleness, right? He deals gently with us. The high priest was to be gentle with the ignorant and misguided because, he says here, he himself is beset with weakness. Now, in terms of weakness, the high priest that came from Aaron, there is a dual weakness with those high priests. First, they possess the natural weaknesses that are associated with our human bodies, with our present existence, with the natural body that we have now. And this is necessary to serve as high priest. But also, not only do they have that weakness, they also have a moral weakness, a moral deficiency, in that they have a corrupt, sinful nature. The first weakness is necessary to perform the duty of high priest. The second weakness is not necessary to stand in that role, but actually it is detrimental to its fulfillment. So Jesus possessed the first weakness. He became like us in all things. He can sympathize with us because he also had a body of weakness as we had. But he did not possess the second weakness, the moral weakness that impairs the high priest from properly performing his function and his duty on behalf of the people. We remember in Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In order for the high priest to sympathize with the people, it is not necessary for him to be a sinner himself, but only that he understand their weaknesses, that he be tempted as they are, and Jesus was tempted as we are, and this is the chief affliction or chief weakness that we face in this life. We are tempted to sin, and Jesus was tempted to sin, but it is not necessary for him to actually commit sin in order to sympathize with sinners, only that he share in our weaknesses, in our natural weaknesses, but not in our moral weaknesses. And Jesus is able to have compassion because he was beset with weakness. He was subject to temptation as we are, but because he did not sin and because he has no sin, he is able to perfectly bear with us in all of our miseries. So he knows and understands our weaknesses. He knows what it is to be tempted, but because he does not have sin or the flesh, he always has compassion and love and patience toward those that are the objects of his love. And so we are reminded that our spiritual life is maintained every second of every day because of the compassion of our great high priest. Our standing before God is always based upon the free grace, the free love of God given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If it was ever based upon our own righteousness, if 
it was based upon it for one second of one day, what would happen to us that one second? We'd be cast off. We would be cast off and we would be condemned. But our standing before God is never based upon our own righteousness, but rather on the righteousness of another, and rather it's based upon the grace of God. We are in the covenant of grace, where God is merciful to us on the basis of Jesus Christ. And though he might cast us off, though we provoke him over and over and over again, right? who can even begin to number the sins that he has committed? And I'm not talking about the sins that we committed before our conversion. But from our conversion till the day of our death, who can even begin to know, to fathom, the number of the sins that we have committed against God? The whole course of our Christian life is one of confession of sin against God. Aren't we even taught in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts that one of the essential things that we are to pray for is for God to be merciful to us, for God to forgive us of our debts. And just as we have our daily bread that we are in need of, so we have our daily debts, our daily sins that we continue to commit against God, and we must come before God, and we must confess our sins to Him. And who is the one confessing those sins to the Father on our behalf? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the one making atonement for them? Our Lord and Savior. He is the one who has atoned for all of these sins. Though we do this every day. And though many times we are confessing the same sin. Over and over and over again. We have our besetting sins as well. Things that we deal with, that we struggle with, that are with us, that plague us over the course of our life. And we have to confess them over and over and over and over again. And yet, what do we always find? A merciful and a faithful high priest in that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as it says in 1 John 1, 9. Though our sins be ever so many, we always find a merciful, faithful high priest who continues to intercede to God on our behalf one who is filled with compassion and mercy and who forgives us of all of our sins. And even if our sins be ever so great. And there have been Christians, and there may even be some here, who have committed great sins against God. Or it may be that one day one of us among our number will commit a great sin before God. Not that there are slight sins before God, but there are some sins that are very scandalous, some sins that are very extreme and that are very great. Yet no matter how great our sin, if we are truly humbled, if we are contrite, if we go to him and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, what will we always find? He's full of mercy and he will forgive us of all of our sins. We know of David. We know his sin was great. He committed murder. He committed adultery. And yet did God cast him aside? No. What about Peter? We know that his sin was great. He denied Christ three times in the time of his trial. He heaped burdens upon Christ when he was there going and facing his most severe trial. He committed great sin against Christ. Did God cast him aside? Did he neglect him? Did he throw him away because of those things? No, but he restored him. He was gracious to him. He was merciful to him. He suffers long with him. 
He was patient and tender and compassionate to them. He dealt with them in gentleness. Haven't we seen this as we've studied through Matthew? The whole course of Jesus' relationship with his disciples is one of constant patience, gentleness, and instructing them over and over and over and over again on things that they should know full well by now. And yet, does he give up? No, he never does. He continues to be merciful to them. And he does this not only for them, but for all of his people who all of us are ignorant and misguided. And so he practices these things. Now, one last thing it ought to be said in closing. That if Christ has so loved us, if he is so gentle and compassionate and tender and merciful and patient towards us, then how should we be toward one another? Then shouldn't we be practicing the same thing, the same love, one toward another? Jesus is constantly exercising patience toward us. He's suffering very long over us. And even the greatest among us, even the greatest saint in this church, is still ignorant and still misguided and in still of constant need of compassion and pity. He does this for us all the time. So we ought to do it for one another. And this is why it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. The same love, the same compassion, the same tenderness, the same mercy, the same patience, the same gentleness that Christ exercises toward us as his people, we ought to exercise toward one another. And yet, what do we often find in us? We don't have a compassionate spirit like Christ. We have a severe spirit, a mean spirit, a capricious spirit, right? A harsh spirit, a bitter spirit toward one another. That we are demanding and exacting of one another, but then we want God to be patient and kind toward us. This should not be. This ought not to be. We should love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. As it says in Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And this should be in all areas of life. In the church, right, the leadership knows that the people are ignorant and misguided. But the people also know what is true about the leadership. Ignorant and misguided. So what do we all need to practice toward one another? Love, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, and kindness. This is the way that we are. What about in the home? The husband knows the wife is ignorant and misguided. She may not know. I'm just kidding. We all know that. Also, the wife knows the husband is ignorant and misguided. So what must we have toward one another? Patience gentleness, kindness, tenderness, forgiveness toward one another. The parents know the children are ignorant and misguided. The children know the parents are ignorant and misguided. So we must be practicing this love one toward another because we are dealing with ignorant, misguided people. So there is the need for us to be gentle toward one another. And we have a perfect example and we have a perfect experience Right, The example and we've experienced ourselves from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, the one who says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 
we should walk as Christ walked. So let us then strive to love one another as Christ has loved us, to be gentle with one another as Christ is gentle toward us. And let us never forget that our standing before God is because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us draw near to him with full confidence, full assurance that if we draw near to him, we will find mercy in our time of need because we have such a high priest who is over the household of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, today. Lord, it is, our minds cannot even begin to grasp, Lord, the depth and the wonders, Lord, of what you have done for us. Lord, of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, this knowledge is too great for us. Lord, we can only begin, Lord, to see a partial of your ways in how you've revealed yourself to us through him. Lord, we thank you that we have such a high priest. Lord, one who is able to bear, Lord, this burden, who willingly, gladly bears it on our behalf. Lord, one who has been appointed by you on behalf of us, Lord, in the things pertaining to God. Lord, to offer gifts and sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, we see that with Christ as our high priest, Lord, we know that there is no sin that remains. That all of our sins, Lord, have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And that this barrier, Lord, that was separating us from you, preventing us from drawing near to you, Lord, preventing us from worshiping you, preventing us, Lord, from having your favor. Lord, the greatness of our sin, Lord, that all of it has been removed so that now we who in our natural state have no right to call you our Father and no right to draw near to you, Lord, even now as we are offering our prayer to you, Lord, we have no right to do these things except through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only because of what he has done for us can we even now bring our prayers before you. And Lord, know that you will hear us and that you will be favorable to us and that, Lord, you will be merciful to us because you see us through him. And Lord, we see you through him. And Lord, we see that he is such a gentle and a tender and a compassionate high priest. And Lord, we know that you will be compassionate toward us. So Father, we pray that you teach us these things. Lord, that we might know them more and more and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never, Lord, cease to be amazed at all that you have done for us through him. So Lord, help us to have a fuller and a more complete understanding. And Lord, we pray that it would give us even more confidence, Lord, of your love and favor. Lord, that it would cause us to, to hate our sin even more. Lord, to, Lord to, to walk in obedience to you. But Lord, we thank you that, Lord, no matter how ignorant and misguided we may be, Lord, we thank you that you have appointed him for us for this very purpose. Lord, in order to perfect your people and to sanctify us and to consecrate us, Lord, so that we are no longer ignorant and misguided. Lord, we know that the end of our salvation is that we will know you even as we have been fully known. And that, Lord, in glory one day, we will no longer be misguided and we will no longer be beset with weakness and with sin, but that we will be perfected. 
and all through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice offered on our behalf and because of his ministry as high priest for your people. So, Lord, help us to, Lord, to marvel at these things. And, Lord, as we consider all that you have done for us, Lord, will you also cause us to love one another in the same way? Lord, may your love for us, Lord, cause us to love each other. And, Lord, we pray that we would seek to practice the same love and compassion that Christ has for us. Lord, that we would extend that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, here in the church, in the home, Lord, wherever we go. Lord, that we would be known as a merciful and as a compassionate people. So, Lord, teach us these things. And, Lord, help us, Lord, in the way. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand.